Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are now officially in the roaring 20s and the feelings of optimism are already sweeping through the nation. Literally two days ago, uh, we were into 2019. We're now into 2020 and the outlook already looks far rosier than it did just a few short weeks ago. Parliament returns next week with a government that has a clear mandate for change, not just over Europe, but in reform of the civil service, recruitment for the armed forces and injection of funding up and down the country. All Boris Johnson has to do now is make it all work and he'll never have a better opportunity. But has there been a couple of trap doors set for him? Will he be able to get what he wants? And will we all still be talking as optimistically now uh, as we will be in about a year's time? We're going to have another positive show today, focusing on what we need to achieve in this new year. And we want to hear as ever from you, the people who matter, the people who elected this government, and the people who rejected Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, and the politics of envy and hatred. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, we'll find out whether Keir Starmer is the answer to lead the opposition back into some kind of electable organisation. We'll be bringing you the latest from Australia as the country continues to burn and we'll find out why the president of Cyprus is under increasing pressure to pardon a teenager from Britain convicted of lying about being raped. 0344 499 1000. Up first though, we'll be discussing the role of our armed forces amid a new Love Island style recruitment campaign and there's a new plank list out too with some new entries for the new year. We've got a new number one. Uh, the Pope's in there as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest great radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, the very good news is that my hearing appears to have returned to normal because when I did a show uh, on Monday, I could barely hear anything out of my right ear, uh, which meant I couldn't hear my producer at all, whatever he said anything to me. Uh, the show didn't seem to suffer apparently from that, but uh, on Tuesday it was slightly better. Now, it would appear to be completely back to normal. I got home yesterday... Uh, after going out for New Year's Eve, put the TV on. I've never heard it so loud. So all I can tell you is it must have been a terrible, terrible noise for my neighbours to listen to me listening to the TV. But anyway, my both ears are now working normally, and I'm delighted to say uh, the first guest of the New Year of 2020 is a good friend of the show, Colonel Richard Kemp. Richard, a very good uh, morning to you. Happy New Year. Thank you. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you now. I think if I'd spoken to you on Monday, it would have been more difficult. But uh, but no, all is, uh, all is apparently... Well. I had one of those annoying colds that kind of somehow went to my ear and blocked my right ear, and I couldn't do anything about it, unfortunately. Um, I think whiskey is the cure for that. Well, you know what? I mean, I think I, I, the, 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 the New Year's Eve kind of celebrations definitely sent it packing, I think. So, uh, so that was all good. Now, let's talk a bit about this recruitment campaign, because we've heard over the course of the last, I don't know, two years probably from the Conservative government, um, that the armed forces are kind of being paired back. And, and you've often said to me, uh, Colonel, on this very show, that the monies are not being spent possibly in the right way, the training is not perhaps what it ought to be. Is this a good thing from your point of view, this kind of let's get people attracted to the armed forces because we can make them look good? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. A, from what I've seen of it so far, it looks like a, a good campaign, which I think will be effective. And, of course, you mentioned money. Money is one of the... Um, the, the big problems with recruiting—it's been—it's been starved of funds for many years. Mm. Why it's one of the reasons why it's been so bad. Well, hopefully that's all changing, and it looks like army recruiting is picking up already. 
No, it does seem as though that's the case. And I suppose um, the failing troop, the falling troop numbers have been as a result of uh, what some people see as the, the rather lacklustre treatment of troops after they leave the armed forces. We still hear uh, terrible stories of uh, people suffering from PTSD, people becoming homeless, you know, veterans not really being looked after properly. There is now supposedly a Minister for Veterans Affairs. Is, has that changed anything? <coughs> I think it's early days for the new Minister, but... Um, of course, I, I don't think, in, certainly in my experience, um, including talking to people today, I don't believe that the kind of problems that you've rightly highlighted about, um, you know, soldiers not being well looked after, particularly after they leave the service, mm. has a massive influence on recruiting. I think it has a marginal influence. And where it does affect, I think, is when there are a parent who actually give a damn about their children, which is not every parent. Who, who who see it and then maybe discourage them where they wouldn't otherwise have discouraged them. But I don't think, I, I, obviously it has to be addressed and corrected, but I don't think that's been a problem for recruitment. I think the big problem has been really the, uh, the recruiting system, mm. which has been virtually impenetrable. It's sort of been computer-based and hard to actually meet face-to-face -face somebody who's actually served, which is vitally important if right. you... You know, you want to have your concerns laid about joining. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I spoke about um, the last sort of advertising campaign about 12 months ago, but apparently that resulted in a record number of applications. It's it's called the Belonging Series, and it tries to sort of appeal to, I suppose, young people's sense of, of wanting to belong to something. Yeah, I, I, I understand it has been successful. And this, this latest campaign, as I see it, uh, is sort of taking that further. In, in suggesting not only it's a good thing to belong, um, but also that uh, a career in the army or even a few years in the army will give people greater confidence in themselves, which will last for life. And I think that is absolutely true. The most important, one of the most important attributes of any fighting soldier is self-confidence. And therefore, of course, the army does everything to try and instill that, whether it be by, by bringing them into a team, by encouraging them, by good leadership, by giving them tough challenges and helping to overcome those challenges. All of those things combined, plus many others, um, do develop self-confidence, which is, you know, becomes a lifelong benefit. No, absolutely. And with the, um, I don't know if it's, it's right to say the kind of current obsession with, with bodily image, um, it's no bad thing if you want to go into the armed forces to make yourself look better. Well, absolutely. And physical fitness, for example, is, uh, I'm, not, I'm not thinking so much about makeup and, Eyeshadow, etc. Physical fitness, being being trim and uh, and and able to endure uh, pressure and to to, uh, to to run fast and run and march over long distance and carry heavy weights. Those things are, uh, if anything, equally important as confidence when it comes to being a soldier. So, yeah, I think you know people who care whether they're fat or thin, whether they're fit or unfit. I think uh, you know that's that's an important thing. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's have a listen uh, to one of the ads which I think is about to go out. Lots of things can give you confidence for a little while. But confidence that lasts a lifetime, there's one place you'll find that. So it's really kind of um, quite specific, this, isn't it? You're basically telling people, look, in this day and age when, you know, you might be over-educated, you might be over-qualified, you might be under-qualified, but what you might want to do is find somewhere uh, where you can learn how to do something which is going to be worthwhile after you leave. Absolutely, and in, in my experience, the Army gives many people who come from perhaps some very, very uh, disadvantaged backgrounds and have had a terrible start in life. It gives many of those people um, an opportunity that they probably wouldn't gain elsewhere. And I've, I've known people and, and served with people who, you know, who, um, you know, perhaps otherwise would have ended up in prison or in some, you know, on the dole or whatever, yet have become extremely effective and successful soldiers and then gone on thereafter to be, be you know, very, continue to be very useful members of society. So mm. I think it's a, it's a great, it is a great career. It's, it's, um, I think it's always been a great career, certainly in my experience, and I think it continues to be. And I would certainly urge anybody who uh, who's thinking about it, and, and indeed their parents, to encourage them to, to to look into it. It does, you know, it certainly gives you a sense of belonging, which I think most people need you know, in, in their life, you know, whatever way it is, and particularly in their work, which sort of dominates most people's lives. And what about uh, the role of the of the armed forces in the coming sort of? 
Boris Johnson government? Because we've already heard that Dominic Cummings, the uh, the chief advisor inside Downing Street, is looking inside the Department of Defence to see whether there are, you know, sort of savings and efficiencies that they can find in the civil service side of things. Well, as far as um, procurement and efficiency, etc., in um, within the MOD, I think it's 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 a very very long standing problem. Um, I think our you know military procurement has always been, for whatever reason, and I don't really understand, it's always been fraught with difficulties. Mm. And and um, and of course, you know, there's there's a hugely bloated number of um, people in working in offices. And if you you know if you I think if you probably compared the number of people sitting in offices now to the equivalent percentage for the number of troops we had fighting in, for example, the Second World War. I think you'd probably be horrified by that figure. Um, I know the situation has changed, things are not the same, but there are too many people sitting in offices uh, inventing too many things for other people sitting in offices to do. So I, I would certainly like to see, and, and I don't just mean civil service and that either, I mean, that also does apply to some uh, military offices. Uh, I would like to see Dominic Cummings cut through that and, and, and do what he can to try and sort it out. But he's, you know, he's got, an, having having worked in the other I can tell you, he's got an uphill job. Well, he has, because, I mean, I've never ever understood why, you know, the old £42 hammer stories that we used to do back in the 80s have still never changed. I mean, you know, you want to buy something for uh, not just the Ministry of Defence, but any government ministry, it seems to cost more rather than less. Yeah, that, that, and that's true. And it, also, it doesn't work half the time. I mean, it's probably hard to find a hammer that wouldn't work, but you could. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, I've, I've got some good friends and, and people I've known who've worked in the procurement world and in administrating the MOD. And, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to sort of just abuse them for the sake of it, but I definitely think there are a lot of um, long standing, lazy practices which could well be overturned and, and improved. I think it's very important that happens because we don't want to be spending money unnecessarily at the back end when it needs to go to the very front end and and that includes also giving soldiers even better pay than they've got now they're reasonable pay today but i think they definitely need to be better paid no, of course. And we've seen as well kind of a, an uprising in the Middle East over the course of the last 12 months, I suppose you would say. There's a bit of a, a sort of a feeling of a second Arab Spring going on. Nobody's quite sure where that goes. But Lebanon uh, is tricky now. I mean, we've seen what's happened to the US embassy in Baghdad. Iran, still a problem. Israel and Palestine still at it, really. Um, is there a role for the British armed forces in any of that during the course of the next 12 months, do you think? Yeah, there is. And, um, and, and those are just some of the problems that exist and of course then then on top of that there are problems that will occur during 2020 that we don't even know about yet mm. that may well require military intervention of some sort i do think that and it, it's always very hard to predict the future but i do think that while while we can't sort of dismiss the idea of you know future massed warfare as we've seen in the past um you know even even as as recently as in the gulf wars um and, and of course, going back to the Falklands and Second World War, etc., and Korean War. Yeah. I think the future, the future is more in the hands, in my view, of smaller military operations involving special forces, involving intelligence, surveillance, use of um, remote vehicles, drones, electronic systems, etc. Um, which I think you know are going to be more more usefully applied to the kind of insurgents and terrorists that we tend to be dealing with more today and people who, who, who carry out attacks without attribution. I think responding in kind in a way is uh, is probably what we need. And I'm not I'm not saying that I'm not dismissing the idea of, of more conventional and traditional types of warfare, but I think what I've just described is more likely to dominate in the future. And does that mean that you're looking or the army will be looking specifically to recruit a different type of soldier, as it were? Well I think they've they've been looking at that. Um, and you know, obviously, they they have been working to recruit more people on, um, uh, you know, working in the technical areas with cyber warfare, for example, um, and you know, various other things which require more sophisticated technical skills than perhaps have been needed before on such a large scale. Um, so I think they are looking at that. But I do think as well that uh, that they will continue to try and recruit. Um, the kind of basic infantry soldier that I once was, for example, mm. a person who's, who's actually quite good at carrying a rifle over long distances and, 
shooting and bayoneting things and and those you know that that those skills and the attributes involved there will still be needed i think so i think you know the army is almost certainly is, is looking at a, a very wide range of potential skills for the future Okay. So, uh, Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Uh, there we talk about the new uh, recruitment campaign. I mean, there are lots of you I know who listen to this show who have served in the armed forces in one way, shape or form. I'd love to know what you think about this, about the recruitment process, about whether uh, applying and sort of appealing to young people's sense of self, their actual uh, their bodily form, their bodily image is a good way to get them into the armed forces. And if you are a parent, would you encourage one of your, chi one of your children to get into the armed forces? I'm not sure I would would be my point. I'm not sure I could trust the leadership of the armed forces to look after my teenage children in a way that I would want them to do. But you could uh, prove me wrong on that. By all means, give me a call. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Recruitment is going to go up. Uh, we are in the roaring 20s, as we are now being told. Uh, so positivism is the thing. Uh, all of the negative people that you used to see hanging about on social media seems to have disappeared. Uh, the word Brexit is not mentioned anymore. The world has changed, ladies and gentlemen, and it's only the 2nd of January. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, if you are driving in a car, uh, we're going to talk to somebody up in York because Andy uh, Dagnorn uh, is, in fact, the deputy leader of the City of York Council, uh, Green Party Council. The York have taken a decision, a bold decision, you might say, uh, to basically ban cars from the centre of town. Andy, very good morning to you. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, a bit of a controversial one. This We've heard from Bristol up until uh, just before the New Year uh, came upon us that they, I think, from 2021 are going to ban all diesel vehicles from the centre of town. Um, what was the process for you and, and what is it going to mean for the people that live there? Well, um, people in York are very familiar with our foot streets. We have quite a big area. It's been 30 years um, pedestrianised between half ten and five during the daytime. Right. So, you know, that's very popular with tourists and residents alike. Um, but we're wanting to take it a step further um, to reduce the amount of traffic in general um, and also to tackle the climate emergency, which the council declared in March this year. We need to make that shift from car-based to sustainable travel and this is a, one way of uh, tackling that. And what's the alternative sustainable travel that you're going to be offering then? Well, already in York, there's a significant number of people cycle and walk um, and use public transport. The difficulty we have is that public transport, most of it goes through the city centre and it gets caught up behind queues of traffic. So in order to prioritise public transport, make it more attractive, we also want to remove non-essential traffic from the city centre. But, I mean, how much of the traffic is non-essential? Have you worked that out? Well, there's been studies done over the years, and uh, I think a fairly significant number. One of the challenges we have is a lot of out-of-town shopping centres with a, a, a northern bypass that's only single carriageway, and when that gets clogged up, some people then think it's quicker to come across the city centre rather than going, avoiding it around the edge. So we are trying to address that as well. Um, so but, a lot of people don't shop in the city people. centre already then? Well, that's, a, again, one of the challenges. Um, there, are, there are people who, who, who for, for the region as a whole, usually have to town shopping centres and people who live in the, the suburbs that might be nearer than the city centre for them. Um, but we have a, a busy tourist economy as well in the city, much better range of cafes and some than we'd otherwise have from the local population. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we benefit from, and obviously thousands, literally thousands of listed buildings in the city centre, narrow streets, they're not designed around the car. Um, we don't want to be knocking buildings down to provide better access, but so what we need to do is make walking and cycling more attractive so people are not do dodging cars when they're trying to walk around. Well, are the, the cars driving all over the pavements then? No, no, but people have to cross the, there's an inner ring road around the centre. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, dodging cars is a bit of an emotive statement, isn't it? People aren't dodging well, cars. They're just well, waiting for the traffic lights and then crossing the road, surely. Yeah, well, we also have foot streets where we have, you know, we have challenges in terms of bin lorries, emergency vehicles, market stalls, you know, there's various people need to have access, people with blue badges, 
you know, can uh, drive uh, quite legally into some areas where most people are walking around thinking that there were, shouldn't be any traffic there. Yeah, because that is the problem, isn't it? As long as you've got, like, shops and, and restaurants and cafes inside the, the area which you want to pedestrianise, you're going to need to have a way of getting the stuff to them, aren't exactly. you? They're going to have to deliver yeah, we stuff. Are. Yeah, we are. So how will that but work, what, what, is, what this proposal is, is all non-essential. So it may be we, we haven't... We haven't got any hard and fast rules. We're going to consult with people over the coming year about how it would work, what's going to be most effective. But it, it certainly, this this um, this Christmas, of course, you know, with the national uh, security alerts, we did have to have in place some um, sort of big, rather ugly barriers around the central area um, when the the Christmas market right. to protect them, Christmas market, and that sort of thing. We are moving on with with uh, better facilities rather than the temporary arrangements we had this Christmas. Um, well, you're not gonna, you can't of, take the, you're not take the barriers that, down, though, right? Anybody, within, anybody going past that barrier had to have a pass. Right. And that, you know, that might be the sort of thing which would be developed for uh -huh. a wider area of the central part of York. And would you put I mean, car parks somewhere? Be, would you build a load of I car mean, parks? Well, we certainly have, we have lots of car parks. We have six park and ride sites um, which carry millions of passengers they're converting this year incidentally they're all going on to electric buses uh -huh. I think we'll be the first How much are you spending on the electric buses? Electric. Uh, well we've uh, as a council we put £1.6 million towards helping the operators convert but a large part of the, the park and ride is the most successful park and ride in the country it's run on a commercial basis a lot of councils subsidise How do you measure that though? Well, it's it's a contract with first buses. Yeah, but how do you make it to be the most the most efficient park and ride in the country? Well, it, it's the one which it's the only one which doesn't have subsidy from the council. Oh, well, you've operate. just given them one point six million. Well, that no, that's gone to the other operators, not the park and ride. Oh, I see. Um, that there's other. So other when you say it's successful, that means they make a load of money. It means that they operate on a. They obviously make a profit. Yeah. yeah. Like okay. any every any uh, private bus operator makes a profit. Um, well, but why are you giving them one point six million then? Well, these it's the other operators. Yeah, but you're saying any private make, any private bus company makes a profit. Why are you giving them one point six million? Well, the money is as an incentive for them to convert their buses to low emission vehicles because we have a clean air zone coming in this year. To, to tackle the air pollution problems that we have in the city, which is largely caused by the congestion. Right. So, you know, it, it, although the buses might cause the, the per vehicle the biggest pollution, overall, there's a, there's a challenge that we have to try and make the air cleaner within our city. Have you got a situation like, like we have in London where we actually got more buses than we need? Because when you look out to the streets of London, you see more bus buses lined up on streets uh, <laughs> which have got London... nobody in them than you see anywhere. London is unique in the fact that uh, they uh, were never deregulated, if you remember. Um, oh, sorry, they were. Yes, they weren't. They were never deregulated, so they were retained uh, as a central transport for London operation. Um, everywhere else in the country, thirty years ago, had uh, privatisation of their bus. Operations. Yeah, well, we've got transport for London, which is a whole other story. Yeah. But I mean, that's we're not going to get into that. We're talking about <laughs> transport. I wouldn't go down that route if I were you. But no, that's, uh, no, when but house. Uh, say, but, well, we don't have the same system as we there, so you know. Well, so we what, a, what, a, what, a, what about to decide mostly apart what about the apart shop owners? What are the what are the shop owners telling you? The shop owners, uh, you get mixed as you will with, when you talk to any uh, community, you'll get shop owners who are very concerned and quite rightly so about the competition from out-of-town traders. But then, you know, people go to the out-of-town shops because once they park their car, they're in a, a car-free environment. And well, one of the reasons that they... That. But also, one of the reasons, Andy, that people go to... Out, one of the reasons they go to out-of-town shopping centres is because they can park, because most city centres now and towns are very difficult to park, and usually because the council have got ridiculously uh, expensive car parking facilities, and if you overstay your welcome by about two minutes, you get a parking fine of 80 quid. Well, yeah, that's... that's how, much money story, do you really, make, how much money do you make from parking fines every year? Well, I couldn't tell you how much it's 
the, the actual Why fines. But Why can't you? And I know that it's a significant amount of money in total from income, from parking, and that's, again, a challenge for the, for the council. Right. We want to promote sustainable transport, but on the other hand... Yeah, but you don't want to lose depends, all that parking fine money, on, do you? We depend on income from that to keep the council tax down. We, if we didn't have that income, we'd either have to be uh, increasing council tax even more or cutting services. Yes. And what about the last time you decided to try a pedestrianised measure? I know you probably weren't in the council in those days, but sometime back in 2013, you had to refund all of the fines that you charged motorists, didn't you? Well, that was the previous administration. That was the Lendl Bridge disaster, yeah. as it was known. Well, that, that, was, uh, that was a PR disaster, certainly for the city. Um, so you thought, well, you're not worried this might be... This might be going down the same road, no? I don't think so, because uh, <laughs> I think we've got more cross-party support this time. Have you? Um, and, you know, the, the, well, the, the uh, specifics are, came forward through the Labour group, um, and the administration is Green and Liberal Democrat. Um, so there's certainly three out of the four parties represented on the City Council have supported mm. it. So what stage are we now at? You said that you're going to have some kind of period of consultation. Uh, what does that actually mean? So when, if people want to in make... The coming, in, the coming, in the coming year, yeah. we will be... Um, well, at the moment we have a local plan, um, which you may be aware, all councils have a, a development plan, which identifies where new housing and offices and what have you are going to go. Right. We're, we're going through the process of... It. Um, an inquiry into our local plan which identifies the next 15 years, another 15,000 households. You're going to have trouble building anything if you can't get any trucks in there, aren't you? Well, so these 15,000 households across the whole... A lot of carriers. I mean, they're obviously <laughs> going, to, going to create, potentially create a lot more need to travel. We need to make sure in our plan, as part of our refresh of local transport plan, that we have sustainable transport at the top of the agenda for that, um, whether that means better buses, new tram systems. But if I'm if I'm going to to buy a load of if I'm going to say buy a load of groceries in a in a, in a local supermarket like Sainsbury's or Tesco's or somewhere like that, yeah. Well, I, usually you probably get order it and get it delivered online. A lot of people these days. Well, honest, some people do, like but not everybody can do that. And a lot of people like to go and pick their own food rather than have it picked for them by somebody else. And a lot of people like to then put it in their car and drive it home, as opposed to trying to get on a bus with yeah. about fifteen different bags. Well. To be honest, there are, within the city centre, I don't know if you've ever visited York, oh, I have been to York, yes. I've been to the Railway Museum, I've been to the Shambles, uh -huh. I've been to York Minster, I've right. been all over the place. Well, you'll, you'll know the Shambles is not the sort of place you have a big supermarket anyhow. Um, and the, the historic streets, um, very mixed, and obviously the challenges for the high street, as every high street from the country is changing, York has done better than most in terms of retaining... Um, there are one or two places where there's been quite a bit of turnover, you know, what is closing and so on. Yeah. Um, but Have you got a lot of empty spaces in the shops? You got a lot of empty sort of lots? Not compared to, compared to other similar sized cities, we do very well. That's not, um, that's not, that's not the answer I was looking for. Have you, into cafes have you, well, bars, yeah, but have you but got a lot of charity shops and a lot of empty shops? That's what I'm asking you. There are, there are some streets, but nowhere, no, certainly no more than any other city. If anything, they're less than other cities because we have a tourist economy that helps to um, cushion us against that. OK. And how bad is the air in York? Because um, you're telling me that you need to make it better. We do. Unfortunately, we don't benefit from government grant funding, unlike cities like Leeds, Bristol, where, you know, where they've been forced by the European legislation to do something about the, uh, the dangerous air quality. In York, the work has all been done on the basis that, well, we've had some small grant, government grants over the years, but mostly through working in partnership with bus operators uh, and with other partners. Yeah, um, but you're yeah. saying it's bad. I'm looking, I'm looking at something from airqualityengland.co.uk, uh, which mm -hmm. says actually lowest uh, pollution uh, in the country. York is one of the best performing cities, so it doesn't actually have bad air. When you say best performing cities, is that in terms of our plans? Or no, in terms, no, in terms of your uh, pollution. It's actually got some of the lowest pollution of any city in Britain. 
Well, the, the, when you look at statistics, it's always challenging, but we didn't... Are you didn't saying you don't believe it? You don't believe the statistics, is that what you say? No, I believe the statistics, but I do know the fact we didn't qualify for funding because we don't, uh, we're below a certain threshold of length of the road. Well, so the air's pretty when good, the though. people live on that road have any healthier air, but the, the whole of the inner ring road is designated air quality management area. And if you look at the 2018, which I think is the most recent data... Um, the areas on the inner ring road which are still above the nitrogen dioxide World Health Organization safe limit. And what is that? Um, well, it's 40 micrograms per cubic metre. Okay. Well, according to this, uh, York Fulford Road, nitrogen dioxide 9, York Gillygate 27, York Hewith Green 19, York Holgate 11, York Lawrence Street 22. Is that nitrogen dioxide? That? Nitrogen dioxide, yeah. That's yeah. what you just gave me, the figure of 49, wasn't it? So, 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 we, so you're below, in almost every street I'm mentioned here. Getting, I'm saying it's getting better, and that's partly down to the work that we've done over the years. Um, to re- right, to well, it sounds like you don't need to do any more. It sounds like you've done a great job already. Listen, I've got to run, Andy. Thank you very much indeed. Andy Dagnorn, Dagorn, Deputy Leader of City of York Council, where the, apparently the air is very good. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 2020. We're in the 20s, because nobody really knew what to call the last decade, did they? I don't think anyone had a name for it. We had the noughties when it was 2001, um, but we didn't really know what to call the 2010 to 2020 decade. Now we've got the roaring 20s. Everybody's very happy about it. In fact, so much so that Boris Johnson's encouraging everyone uh, to be very forward-thinking, to be very positive, to be very optimistic, and I think he's right to say that, because we've got a lot going on. Uh, Of course, if you live in York, you might not be quite so optimistic after hearing uh, that interview that we just did uh, with one of their uh, councillors. Let's talk to Dave, uh, who's in the Cotswolds, wants to talk about York. Hello, Dave. Morning, Mike. How are you? Very Happy well, New sir. Year. Happy New Year to you. What can I do for you? Well, I, I, I've never phoned up the uh, radio before, but my God, that guy you've had on. <laughs> He's in charge of the council. I mean, what are they paying him for? I know. Well, it's a bit worrying, isn't it? When you ask a question, you can't get an answer. And then when you do get an answer, it turns out that the answer is actually completely against what it is that they're trying to do. It's, it absolutely makes my blood boil to think that the country is being run by these idiots <laughs> who are being paid, you know, a hell of a lot of money. They should be like talented people with some business acumen who know how to, how business works yeah. and what happens. I mean, that traffic idea that they've got up there, and you absolutely tied him up in not saying that, uh, you know, that the actual pollution isn't that bad in no. York. And he said, well, yeah, that's right, because we can't actually get a grant from the government for it, you know. 
It's unbelievable. Well, do you know what's, what's happened? What's happened over the last, say, two years, I'm very pleased to say, and I'd like to say I played a part in this, we found out that a lot of people in Parliament in Westminster weren't very good at their jobs. We've managed to get a lot of them kicked out of the last election. I think we now move on the councils and start to find out who's standing for what and find out who the idiots are and get them out. I'm totally on board with you. And, uh, I mean, we've got the same uh, down here, really. Yeah. I mean, they're just absolutely clueless with shops. Like, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, he was on about, well, drive and move them all outside. We need all this traffic and, uh, like, you know, the buzzes and get everybody back on the buzz. Nobody wants to be on a bus. No. Who in this decade wants to be in a bus. My kids have never been on a bus in the last 10 years. I mean, I use the buses in London because in London there's yeah, an awful lot of buses, right? Yeah. But when yeah, you yeah. go to places like York, there's not enough of them. You can't get to where you want to go. And if you're going to go shopping, it's not very convenient, I'm afraid, you know? No, it's, it, honestly, it beggars belief. And people must turn up there and just think, what on earth is going on with these um, people who are being paid, like I said, to, to make change, make things improve, make it all better for everybody, and all they're doing is, like, clearing the towns out. I mean, you won't need any buzzes in the towns because nobody will be in the town. No, there won't be. I mean, I've had quite a few tweets from people who know York well, and they say he's not right about the number of empty shops. There's loads of empty shops already in York because all this nonsense about, well, we've got to deal with the climate emergency. Well, I'm sorry... One, there isn't a climate emergency. Two, you're going to have a ma massive emergency if you cut down all the shops because you won't have any city uh, rates that are being paid into the council. They won't have any money. No, and like you said about car parking, they make all the money from parking yeah. and parking fines. I mean, I, I live close to a town, um, Eversham. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's a small town. It can take 45 minutes to drive through because they can't get a traffic plan sorted. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I know, it's absolutely incredible. But also they live in this kind of um, bizarre, uh, gilded world where they don't actually come into contact with any real people. They make decisions based on what they call research, which is just really somebody putting some information together that agrees with what they agree with. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're 100% right, mate. <laughs> it's a total racket. Total racket. Listen, Dave, great call. Thanks for making the call. Do it again because you did very well. Let's talk to Paul, who's in Islington. Hi, Paul. Hello, Mike. How's it going, mate? Very well, sir. Happy New Year to you. Good to see the lion back on his throne. Thank, thank you very much indeed. I've, I've enjoyed uh, the transition, if you like, to 2020. I'm enjoying it already. What, well, you mean your bottle of PP um, vintage? Yeah, well, you know what? I didn't even know it was vintage when I was drinking it. It was only later that I realised that it was. We had two of them. <laughs> what year was it from? 2008, I think, or 2007. Um, it wasn't the rosé, it was just the vintage. It was just the vintage, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, no, they're very nice. Yeah, very I got nice. engaged once and I had a couple of bottles uh, for my engagement. Top man, um, well done. Yeah, it's a rose though. So yeah, very. Oh right, okay, even better. Uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, look again, you stole my thunder, mate. You, you always, I think you always say what's on the uh, the mind of the general folk that's listening to you. I think that's what we like about you, Mike. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm liking myself to the. the I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of calling myself the voice of the uh, uh, the silent majority. Do you know who you remind me of? You're across between um, Andrew O'Neill. And John Humphreys. Okay, I'll take is that. that. Is that fair? I mean, that's it's not fair. That They're a bit old, yourself, to be fair. But I mean, I'm not as old as them. But I'll take that. Uh, well, yeah, it's more like sort of wisdom and knowledge, right? And the, yeah. you know the way the way that they uh, articulate themselves. Anyway, yeah, uh, with that um, idiot from York, um, what, what, what's this about? Because all it seems to want to do is to curtail small business, right? Yes. You know, you can you can go and park where you've got these big companies that have uh, free parking. And all of the legislation for small businesses is just, it's killing them as it is. And this is just making it worse. But why? You know, why? I think you, you hit a really good point with what you said before. We should be going into the councils and see what they're about, you know, these decisions that they're making, because they're not based on the PPMs of the pollution, because he was totally off on that, right? Right. My question is, why, Mike? Why are they doing it? Well, because they like the idea of somehow making... I think there is actually a belief system out there for people who don't like car drivers. They don't think cars are the, are the answer. And not only that, they do actually think that sort of somehow cars are evil. 
and they want to stop them. I mean, it's happening in London. Sadiq Khan is making swathes of London completely um, undrivable for people in ordinary cars and ordinary vehicles, and there are only going to be buses, taxis and cycles allowed on certain parts of the city. And, and it's what, madness. What, what, Mike, what's it like for you as a driver in London and you've got small roads and now you've, I'm a cyclist, I don't drive, right? Yeah. How frustrating is it for you? Because cyclists were kind of all over the place. You've got to deal with potholes and whatever, right? It's like, you know, the drivers have got enough to contend with. I, I cycle in London. That's all I do. Yeah. No, listen, I'm, I'm, I have a great deal of sympathy for people who want to cycle in London because it's quite dangerous. My problem is that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I don't... I use public transport in London because it's not worth driving around and I have a car really for going backwards and forwards to Sussex, right? But the bottom line for me uh, is that... Um, if you're trying to make a living by driving a van or driving a taxi or driving an Uber or driving some kind of private hire vehicle, you know, your life is being made in absolute misery and that's not good for business. Absolutely. What, I mean, you're paying road tax. You, 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 all these things you've got to pay out for. I don't have to pay for anything on a cycle. Yeah. I mean, cycling is probably the quickest way to get around London now, apart from the tube. Oh, I, I never use the tube. I, I go everywhere by bike. I, I just wouldn't bother personally. But look, this is my point. What about when it's uh, raining, uh, though? You don't want to go in the rain, do you? Oh, Mike, stop it. You don't think I'm, uh, you don't think I'm a Sunday cyclist, do you? <laughs> well, I, don't, I would not get on a bike in the rain. I don't even like walking in the rain. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely well, and I'm with you on walking in the rain, mate. But cycling, no, I've got no problem at all. all right. um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fair weather cyclist. All, all snow, anything in London, I'm fine with it. Look, my point is, back to uh, that fella from your... I, do you know what I think this comes down to, Mike? Um, and I'd like you to give it some consideration. Right. Agenda, Agenda 21, set out by the UN in, in the mid-50s. Yes. Uh, do you know about this? I've, I've heard of it, yes. It's a sustainability uh, protocol, um, which all sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, well, <laughs> it seems to be the UK's adopted it, lots of other countries. Um, but, yeah, but I, this is where I, I, I think this is where this is stemming from. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll look into it, Paul, because I've got to run, because I'm, I'm being told we're running late, and I was so late for the last lot of news. I can't be so late for the next lot of news, but it's already too late. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Some fascinating tweets coming in on the subject of York Council. JP says, the guy from York also seems to think that most people who use supermarkets do so online and then get their shopping delivered for them. Has he not been in a supermarket and seen how packed out they are? Absolute idiot or just plain deceitful. Uh, Peter says, I live in a market town with three hours free parking everywhere and the high street is thriving. I have some large national retailers here that wouldn't normally open in a town this size. It's a conservative council. Uh, Roger says, clearly the Duke of York and the head of York Council are being advised by the same person. A great show, good to have you back. Well, very kind of you. Um, and, of course, the Duke of York, who was number one on the planks list for 2019, has disappeared out of the top ten. Uh, but York Council may have to make an appearance next week, the way things are going. And also, I've got this great one here uh, from uh, a tweeter who's told me that York Council and uh, York Councillors voted themselves, guess what? A great big pay rise in December. Uh, apparently the recommended the basic allowance for councillors increases by more than 12% and it says payments to members with special responsibilities I don't know if that was one of the guys that we were speaking to should rise by up to 50%. Huh? So they voted themselves a big pay rise uh, and they're now going to close off the entire city to anyone in a car. Tremendous. Genius. Where do they find these people? Absolutely extraordinary stuff. 0344 499 1000. Now, uh, you may be calling it the most poisoned chalice of all poisoned chalices ever, but somebody's going to have to take over the Labour Party after Jeremy Corbyn actually threw the whole uh, baby out with the bathwater and managed to get the worst result against Boris Johnson in December. Uh, to, compared to like something like 1935, I think it was worse. We're going to talk to Brendan Chilton now, uh, who is, of course, head of Labour Future, which used to be called um, Labour Leave, I think. Brendan and a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning and a happy new year. Happy to you, new year to you, Brendan. Now, the last time you and I spoke, you were a bit more optimistic about Labour than I presume you are now, because uh, I think you thought they might still squeeze a, a tiny majority in the election in December. It, well, it seems like your listeners should totally disregard absolutely everything I say because I've been <laughs> <completely> <laughs> Well, listen, you're not the only one, Brendan, and, and yeah. top marks to you for admitting it because not many people in the Labour Party have. I mean, what I don't want to hear from you is that you got the arguments right, that you won the arguments, that people loved your policies, but just so happened that they didn't actually vote Labour. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it is what many now say to be an existential crisis for Labour, isn't it? 
It is. I think I think when we last spoke, I predicted a hung parliament. Yeah. Um, but um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for anyone to go on any uh, media or broadcaster and say all oh, the policies were right and everything was right, but the public just weren't convinced enough to vote for us, which right. is absolute nonsense. We need a complete and total break with what has gone before. We've got, you are right, we are in existential crisis territory. Um, we've lost seats that have been Labour for 80 to 100 years. Right. And we went down to our worst defeat ever. There was, there's no denying this is a total disaster. Mm. And, and especially I mean, when we're 10 years into a Tory government. No, of course. I mean, given what, what you know and who you speak to inside the party, I mean, obviously there are those who are still closely associated with Jeremy Corbyn who are not really listening, even now. I mean, I've seen, for example, Piers Corbyn, his brother, uh, putting out a tweet saying, you know, let's campaign to keep Jeremy as the leader. And you go, what? Have you, have you, you know, have you had some kind of bizarre, you know, nightmare scenario where you've woken up and thought that that didn't really happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things is Jeremy has said he's going to resign, so I don't think we need to worry about that. All I would say um, is individually, some of the policies were popular, not just with Labour voters, but with Tory voters. Mm. The problem was, day in, day out, this is free, that's free, you can have this, you can have that. It just became so fantastic that Joe Public, you know, people that have got to look after the pennies and watch the pounds, have got to save up to pay their bills and their holidays, they just thought, well, hang on a minute, where's all this money coming from? Mm. How are we going to pay for all this? And when you're telling people it's free, it's free, it's free, the British public are clued on. They know full well that nothing is free. Um, you've got to pay for it, and the money's got to come from somewhere. So while individually some of our policies were popular, when the whole thing was put together, people just went, no, right. this isn't going to work. Exactly right. And instead what they've now handed Boris Johnson is a massive mandate and a massive majority to pretty much do whatever he likes. Now, what I've said is that, you know, I will be as critical of Boris Johnson and the Tories as I would be of any uh, Labour government coming in. If they mess it up, uh, they'll get it in the neck from me. However, um, you know, they're going to have to do something really pretty awful to mess it up. Yeah, I mean, Boris has got, a, I think it's an 80 majority, um, and some of those seats, such as Bassett Law, which, again, had been Labour since time began, yeah. has now got something like a 12, 14,000 Tory majority. It's a safe seat. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I think you're right. I think what Labour have, have got to do now is the last thing we need to do is pick a leader that makes us feel good. Mm. We need to pick a leader that makes us feel slightly uncomfortable, that makes us slightly nervous about what their policies are going to be. And what I mean is we need to look at those voters, those communities that abandoned us and rejected us. Well, they didn't abandon us. They rejected us. We abandoned them. Yeah. And if that means us taking a slightly tougher line on immigration, if it means us being a little bit more pro-aspiration than welfareism, if it means us being much stronger on defence and much stronger on Brexit, yeah. then we need to do it because that is where the country has shifted to. And if we keep sitting there playing the same old tunes, the country are not going to listen and we're not going to recover. But one of the things that you might find interesting, as I'm sure um, I, I certainly did, you know, the YouGov poll, which has only polled just over a 1,000 people, and I was once told by a pollster that anything under 2,000 is not worth taking too seriously. However, um, one of the things that puts Keir Starmer way ahead of Rebecca Long-Bailey in this poll is that Labour Party members want him in. But one of the things that, that, that he is not popular in uh, is areas where Labour voters voted to leave the European Union because he's a Remainer and therefore all of those places that you lost because of Brexit wouldn't be coming back under Keir Starmer, I don't think. Well, this is precisely what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, Sir Keir Starmer is very talented. One of the, incidentally, I was quite critical of Boris Johnson's deal initially and I thought one of the best speeches dismantling it actually came from Sir Keir Starmer. Mm -hmm. It came from the wrong perspective, that of a Remainer, but actually his analysis was very good. He would make a fantastic shadow Lord Chancellor or a shadow Home Secretary. He'd be on the money for that. But I personally do not believe he's the right guy to lead the party right now. Ideally, we need someone that has been not associated with the front bench uh, for the past parliament. We need someone brand new, perhaps someone from the back benches. My own uh, personal preference, he hasn't announced yet, but I would love Dan Jarvis to come forward. Okay. I think he'd be fantastic. Um, Where are you just, on Jess Phillips? Uh, no, I don't think Jess. Again, the problem we've got is very talented in many ways, but our target audience right now are conservative voters are Leave voters and people in the Midlands, North Wales, and the North East mm. and, and the North West. You do not need a Remainer who is 
sort of centrist, that type of Labour, to win them back. You need someone that's, that's done something outside of politics. You need someone that preferably has gone on that journey from remain to leave. Right. Someone who comes from that area of Britain. Um, you know, you, you don't want a Londoner uh, trying to win back Stoke. You Do you think that's important, though? Because a lot of people have said, you know, that the Labour are barking up the wrong tree with that. Because, you know, Boris Johnson's hardly, you know, Mr North East uh, England, is he? He's very much a Londoner. He's very much a member of what other people might say is the elites of, of government and of politics. Yeah. And yet they're voting for him. No, no, I get that. But I think that the difference there is he tapped into how they were feeling and what they were they wanted on mm. the biggest issue of the day, namely Brexit. Now, yeah. best will in the world... I don't think Sir Keir Starmer or perhaps Jess Phillips is the person to do that because for the past three to four years, they campaigned to remain and since the referendum, they've done everything possible to change the country's mind and try and get us to remain. Yeah. And so to win back Stoke, to win back Mansfield, to try and dent that Tory majority in Bassett Law, mm. you don't need um, someone who has done completely the opposite to what the voters there want. Yes. Um, which is why I think, why I said earlier on, we need to pick a leader right now that doesn't make us, and not me personally, but the party, feel comfortable in its sort of remain land, sort of, you know, yes, socialism is still very popular land. We want someone to challenge us and to take the difficult calls that, yes, are going to make the party unhappy, but that will get us to power. And how difficult is it going to be to overcome the factionalism, though? Because you've obviously got people coming from Rebecca Long-Bailey's side of the argument who are basically Corbynistas who want to try and continue with that kind of left-wing uh, manifesto, if you like, because they believe that it's right. Well, the first sign of madness is to keep doing something over and over again, um, True. <laughs> even when it's been proved wrong. Yeah. Um, and so all I would say to people, wherever, and let's remember, every party in this country is a broad church. You've got people on the left, on the centre, and the Tories on the centre and on the right. But we've just got to look at where we're going to be in four years' time. In four to five years' time, we're probably going to have boundary changes. There's probably going to be yeah. changes in the way people vote. We'll probably by then have left the EU and beyond to trade deals. And if Boris uh, honours what he says and spends more on public services, we are going to be in a very different political landscape than what we're in now. And if we turn up in that election and go, oh, universal credit, the misery of poverty is what we're about, or oh, we need to remain, or oh, isn't things terrible, we are not going to win. We need someone that's looking four years ahead, that can see that political terrain, and has got the, the competence, actually, to take on this government and to transform the Labour Party once again into a winning machine. And do you think they would do better to speed things up a bit? Because we've been told, effectively, this is going to go on until the end of March. I think that's a massive mistake. Oh, it, it, we, well, it's, again, the sign of madness. You know, in 2010, we lost the election, spent six months having a leadership election. The Tories define the narrative. Yeah. In 2015, we lost, spent six months having a leadership election. The Tories define the narrative, and this time we're doing it again. Um, there's no reason why we can't elect a leader of the Labour Party in a month. If we can have a general election in a month, yeah. uh, why can't we elect a leader of the opposition? And if anyone's listening on the NEC, not that they listen to me, uh, <laughs> I'd say let's move it to the end of January. Let's get it done nice and quickly. Yes, I think I'd absolutely back you on that. Brendan, thanks very much indeed. Brendan Chilton, the head of Labour Future, uh, wants to see somebody like Dan Jarvis running. At the moment, he's not running. But at the moment, uh, all of the polls are pointing towards Keir Starmer building up a solid lead over his rivals, including Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, who's about the closest to him. But even she is very, very far away from his success, supposedly. But would Keir Starmer be the answer? If you're a Labour Party member, uh, and if you are uh, somebody who wanted to vote Labour but couldn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, would you vote for Keir Starmer? 0344 a 499 Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.